DW Inside Europe. Hello and welcome. I'm Nick Martin in Germany. As the AFD surges in popularity, one of Germany's spy chiefs warns the far-right party is treading a more radical course. The AFD has become increasingly extremist and anti-democratic, and party members are actually discussing openly racist theories. A fire on a car transportation ship off the Netherlands stokes fears about electric vehicles. And even after leaving Putin's Russia, many dissidents find life abroad is not plain sailing. They have doubts that I am a Russian spy. <laughs> And that's the excuse they're using to just reject a visa or residence permit. Those stories and more coming up on the program. Of course, we're all very concerned about the current poll results. What's happening here? How blatantly the shift to the right has arrived in Germany? And above all, how blatantly a National Socialist Party is gaining momentum here? I came here today because I think that this party, the AfD, massively threatens democracy here in Germany and also massively threatens me as a person who is queer. That's why I'm here today to protest against it, to make my opinion known. Just a couple of the thousands of protesters who gathered in Magdeburg last weekend against the rise of the far-right Alternative for Germany party, or AFD. The country's cost-of-living crisis, large-scale immigration and the pricey green transition have turned some voters off Chancellor Olaf Scholz's three-party coalition. Around a fifth of German voters now say they would vote for the AFD in the next election. Last month, the party won a vote for district leader for the first time and is on course to win three upcoming state elections in eastern Germany. But there's growing concern that disaffected voters may be throwing their weight behind an increasingly radical party. One of Germany's spy chiefs warned this week that the AFD has been taken over by extremist factions and is becoming anti-democratic. To find out more about how intelligence agencies have been keeping a check on the party's activities, I spoke to DW's political correspondent, Thomas Sparrow, in Berlin. Well, the Office for the Protection of the Constitution does indeed believe it has the right to actually observe the AFD and determine whether the party or parts of the party are actually extremists. It has been doing this for some time now. And that's why actually you heard from the head of Germany's domestic intelligence saying only days after the party conference that the AFD has become increasingly extremist and anti-democratic and that party members are actually discussing openly racist theories such as the so-called Great Replacement. The Office for the Protection of the Constitution, and I specifically translate the official name, believes it can actually do this because their main task is to guarantee that the Constitution is respective, to guarantee Germany's uh, democratic order. These statements are indeed controversial and they help fuel this debate as to whether the AFD is or not an extremist party, whether there are too many extremists in the party or whether the party is democratic, something that uh, the AFD certainly believes. Yeah, let's get into that. How has the party responded to these accusations? If you ask the AFD, and I did so when I was covering the party conference last weekend, they believe 
that the fact that the Office for the Protection of the Constitution is observing them, is uh, trying to find out whether they're extremists, is actually a politically motivated decision and that it's actually unheard of, as some of them describe, that that such a domestic intelligence agency is actually observing one of the main opposition parties in the country. The party believes that they are the only alternative in Germany to deal with some of the problems in the country and as such voted on by many people in society. And indeed, that was an issue that I discussed with Beatrix von Storch. Beatrix von Storch is a member of the German parliament. She's one of the most prominent figures within the AFD. And many voters, I think it was around 20% of people who would vote for the AFD, considered that there were too many extremists within the party. And the question that I posed to her is how to deal with the fact that some voters within the party are concerned about this issue of extremism as well. Well, if there is sometimes there's one or another, we address the problem. Look to our program, look to what we say, look what we do in the parliaments, look what our people say. And maybe, maybe not only on every single Facebook site, some kind of content. I'm not saying we don't have any kind of problem. AFD politician Beatrix von Storch there. Now, Thomas, the AFD is currently polling at between 18 and 20 percent, which has got the uh, coalition parties, the Greens, the Social Democrats and the Free Democrats worried, especially as it's twice what the AFD achieved in the 2021 federal elections. Why such a large swing to them? Essentially because there's dissatisfaction among sectors of the German population who believe, on the one hand, that Germany is going in the wrong direction. They're concerned about current policies when it comes to trying to help improve the economy, or they're also concerned about weapons deliverance to Ukraine. They're concerned about the impact of the war in Ukraine here in in Germany. But they're also dissatisfied with the other parties. It's interesting, actually, to see that uh, polls have revealed that many people would vote for the AFD, not necessarily because they believe the AFD presents solutions to what they're interested in, but because they do not believe other parties will do that because they are dissatisfied with the way other parties are dealing with crises here in Germany. The AFD is particularly strong in the eastern part of the country. So in the region that was before German reunification, that was East Germany. And many people for a very long time, have felt resentful. They have felt like second-class citizens. They feel that compared to people in the western part of the country, they have been disadvantaged. And when people feel disadvantaged, one of the ways in which they can react politically is by going to these kinds of parties like the AFD that are protest parties. And again, if you look at polls, many people say that the AFD may not necessarily present many solutions, but that at least it does describe problems as they are. And this is something that might also help understand why voters go to the AFD at the same time, why this might change in election times when people are actually obviously looking not only at a party that can say things as they are, but also that can present solutions to their biggest problems. DW's political correspondent Thomas Sparrow there. Now to the Netherlands, or rather just off the Dutch coast, where this week authorities towed a burning cargo ship carrying nearly 4,000 cars, including electric vehicles, to a temporary location to avoid a major ecological disaster. The vessel, which was registered in Panama, caught fire last week, killing a sailor on board and injuring some of the other 22 crew. It's still not clear what caused the blaze, though there's been speculation one of the electric cars on board may have been the source. 
As correspondent Stefan Boss now reports, the residents of two islands are concerned about the wider impact of the disaster. Fishermen in their boats circle around the burning cargo ship to offer help if necessary. They and many others have been in shock for over a week, fearful that the vessel will precipitate an ecological disaster. Two tugboats towed the vessel, called the Fremantle Highway, to a new location. It was carrying nearly 4,000 new cars, including around 500 electric vehicles. During the week, the Dutch National Institute for Water Management said the amount of smoke from the burning ship had subsided, but the danger is not over yet. It now lies near the islands of Schiermonnikoog and Ameland. Oh, it's helemaal daar in the middle. It's helemaal ook daar. Worried residents, including children, watch the smoke from the beach at Ameland. These islands straddle the Wadden Sea and the North Sea. The Wadden Sea is a UNESCO World Heritage Site and the region is home to more than 10,000 species of plants and animals. The Fremantle Highway was sailing from the German port of Bremerhaven to Singapore when it caught fire about 27 kilometers north of Ameland. Rescue worker Willard Molenaar was among the first to arrive at the scene. He says he won't forget the horrors of seeing the tragedy unfold and the crew jumping off the burning ship. It was, of course, terrible for them to jump into the sea from a height of 30 meters. It meant that we had to pick them out of the water one by one. It was a team effort that also included colleagues from the other island. I was involved in the rescue of seven men. The fire killed one and injured many of the other 22 crew on board, and that's added to mounting concern there about the amount of freight shipping passing by these islands. The mayor of Ameland, Leo Peter Stuhl, is concerned about the future of his island, with its nearly 4,000 residents and many more tourists. That ship is full of fuel oil, and of course we don't want that oil on the beaches of this island, but also not in the Wadden Sea. I'm also concerned about birds getting covered with oil. Then they can't fly, which would be an even greater tragedy for nature here. There are reports that the blaze may have started in one or more of the electric cars on board, known for their large, highly inflammable batteries. And this comes amid a broader debate in the Netherlands about the safety of electric cars. The government wants to make the Netherlands an electric cars-only nation by 2030. But real estate developers and local politicians around Amsterdam recently said they were ill-prepared if an electric vehicle caught fire in an underground garage. They pointed out that such a fire could rage for at least 24 hours. This is just the latest massive fire at sea involving a cargo ship. Last year a vessel called the Felicity Ace caught fire and eventually sank in heavy seas some 400 kilometers off Portugal's Azores island chain. It was also carrying cars and it thought the blaze was caused by a battery in one of the electric vehicles on board. Dutch investigators are now trying to find out what led to the massive fire on board the Fremantle Highway. Stefan Bos, DW.
the Netherlands. In Russia these days, people who speak out against the war in Ukraine can be sent to jail, potentially for years. Thousands of Russians who oppose the conflict have fled for their safety to nearby countries along Russia's borders. But as Levi Bridges reports, Russian dissidents aren't exactly safe even once they've left the country. After Russia invaded Ukraine, Yevgenia Baltatarova, a journalist and activist in Siberia, started posting online about her opposition to the war. Just a week later, more than a dozen police officers showed up at Baltatarova's apartment with a search warrant. I knew that something bad is going to happen. Repressions are coming because of this war. Police eventually opened a criminal case against Baltatarova for spreading fake news about the war. But by then, she had already crossed the border to nearby Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan, it was quite good. I found a job. I found friends. My relatives could visit me here. But then she started having problems. Kazakh authorities detained Baltatarova to extradite her to Russia. They eventually let her free. But she's not allowed to leave the country. And her work permit wasn't renewed. There's always the threat of getting deported to Russia. This is the most dangerous situation I've ever been in my life because I am accused to being in jail for up to 15 years. And I'm not a criminal. I'm just a journalist. Recently, Baltatarova tried to apply for asylum in Kazakhstan, but officials refused to accept her application. In a video she took, Baltatarova asks Kazakh officials to explain why. A woman just slams the door in her face. They eventually did accept Baltatarova's application, but that doesn't exactly give her peace of mind. Recently, Kazakhstan deported a Russian officer who also applied for asylum. He's serving more than six years in jail for avoiding military service. Harboring anti-war Russians has become a liability for former Soviet countries that border Russia. Many people in countries like Kazakhstan strongly support Ukraine, but their governments still maintain close economic and security ties with Russia. So they don't want to appear too friendly to dissidents. Filmmakers from Al Jazeera recently captured some pretty incredible footage of Russians gathering on the streets in Almaty, Kazakhstan, to show their support for Ukraine. And you can sense just how uneasy some people are doing this in public. One man steps up before the crowd to read a passage of a Ukrainian poet. Doesn't seem like anything too radical, but another Russian immediately runs up and stops him. We need to keep a very low profile here, a woman tells him, or someone might get deported. Countries in the region are taking different approaches to dealing with Russian migrants. Katya Arenina is an investigative journalist from Russia who moved to Georgia in the South Caucasus before the war. She says the last time she flew to Georgia, customs officials in the airport took her aside. 
She says they eventually told her she wasn't allowed to enter the country, even though she'd never committed a crime there. They didn't give her a reason, but Arenina says actually she wasn't surprised. Because, she says, in the couple of weeks before this went down, five other Russians with similar backgrounds were also turned away at the Georgian border. Arenina lives in Lithuania now. But even Russians who make it to the EU, in countries that are firmly out of Russia's orbit, still don't exactly feel welcome. I talked to Russians in the EU who said landlords often don't want to rent to them. And they can't open bank accounts because of sanctions. Anti-Russian sentiment is tearing up some people's lives. For me, like, personally, it is the hardest time in my life. Nikolai moved to Estonia before the war to launch a startup. He asked us not to use his last name out of concern for safety. But he says investors are severing ties with companies founded by Russians like him. So it, it looks like the startup is dead. He's having trouble renewing his residency permit because Estonia has made the process far more difficult for Russian citizens. I think they have doubts that I am a Russian spy. <laughs> and that's the excuse they're using around the Europe to just reject a visa or residence permit. You are a national threat, that's it. Russians like Nikolai are just hoping they won't be deported back to Russia, where he could go to jail for opposing the war or get drafted to fight in Ukraine. Yevgenia Baltatarova, the journalist in Kazakhstan, is also waiting to renew her expired immigration documents. You have to face everyday danger of being deported, extradited. You have that worries every time because we are not accepted as victims of this war. For people like Baltatarova, sometimes it feels like there's nowhere left to run. Levi Bridges, DW. Still to come on Inside Europe, the Eastern European country challenging Germany for the fastest motorways. And a reminder that DW keeps you updated on the latest news from across Europe. You can stay up to date by visiting our website, dw.com, or checking out DW Europe's social media pages. I'm Nick Martin in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. Next to the Czech Republic, or Czechia as the government prefers it to be called, where Parliament recently passed an amendment to the road traffic law containing a series of changes to the rules of the road. Nothing too unusual about that, you might think, except for one provision that's really grabbed the headlines. In a country where road safety has never been great, the government wants to increase the motorway speed limit in strictly defined stretches to 150 kilometres an hour. As Rob Cameron reports from Prague, that would give the Czechs the second fastest motorways in Europe. The Czech Republic, where car is king and road safety is OK. Rather, the roads are not as bad as they used to be, but there's still lots of aggressive tailgating, risky overtaking 
and speeding. Certainly, the situation has improved in the past decade. The roads are smoother, the cars are safer, the drivers are a bit better. The latest preliminary EU statistics show the Czechs are sort of in the middle, with 50 road deaths per 1 million inhabitants in 2022. They're certainly far better than Romania, 86 fatalities per million, Bulgaria, 78, or Croatia, 71, but far behind top dogs Sweden on 21 and higher than the EU average of 46. Amidst this middling performance, the centre-right government now wants to raise the speed limit on selected stretches of motorway from 130 kilometres per hour to 150, faster than Bulgaria and Poland's 140 and second only to Germany's unlimited autobahn. The Czech transport minister Martin Kupka set out the thinking for Czech radio. We've also clearly defined exactly under what conditions we can imagine this happening. We've limited it to only those modern stretches of motorway where there are computer-controlled motorway signs, as we're used to in certain countries to the west of us, that determine the maximum speed depending on the current visibility, traffic density and so on. And on those stretches, depending on those conditions, 150 would be possible. And yes, it is true that for now, there would not be too many such stretches on the Czech motorway network. But if you look at other arguments, if you look around the world, then it's quite clear that motorway speed is truly just one of many factors that determine safety on the roads. Mr Kupka went on to make the perfectly valid point that motorways everywhere, not just in the Czech Republic, are generally far safer than other roads. In 2020, he said, there were 33 fatalities on Czech motorways, but this was just 7% of the total 460 deaths on the roads. Not everyone, however, is convinced at the wisdom of the proposal, which, as critics point out, would shave off perhaps six minutes from a 100-kilometre journey. Libor Budinar is from an initiative called Vision Zero, which is supported by his employer Cooperativa, part of the Vienna Insurance Group. He says the amendment overall is a complex piece of legislation containing a whole host of changes to road traffic rules, most of them extremely welcome, except for one. Increasing the speed limit, whether it's on motorways or off them, goes against the worldwide trend. On the contrary, the trend around the world is to reduce speed, which is something contained in the Stockholm Declaration, in which experts from various sectors found that the lower the speed, the greater the chances that the vehicle's occupants will survive or avoid life-changing injuries. So from that point of view, it simply does not fulfill the safety criteria. It's a simple fact. That's a view shared publicly by many, including the head of the country's traffic police. His protests appeared to fall on deaf ears. MPs have approved the bill and it now goes to the Senate and then on to the president for signature. But there's a caveat and a big one. Even if the bill becomes law, each stretch would have to be signed off by something called the Road Administration Authority. Libor Budina believes that as a consequence, the number of kilometres where Czech drivers will be able to put the pedal to the metal will be extremely modest indeed.
For DW, this is Rob Cameron in Prague. For more interesting stories from the Czech Republic and the rest of Europe, remember to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Nick Martin in Germany. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Nick Martin in Germany. In the next half hour, the arrival of Wagner forces near the Polish-Belarusian border sparks a strong response by Warsaw. The trials and tribulations of being a Ukrainian teenager and a refugee. It's better for me because I will talk with my mom. Is everything okay? And I just hear her voice and I feel better. I have more energy. Is France's equivalent of Fox News swinging too far to the right? In January, for example, the journalist Judith Weintraub said on CNews that Ukrainian refugees don't pose the same problems of integration and cultural difference as certain Africans do. This is incitement to discrimination against certain refugees because of their origin. And how the old and young are finding more and more in common at a Vienna cafe. From Bonn, Germany, you're listening to Inside Europe. The Wagner Group, which is appearing more and more in Belarus, is an ever-increasing threat. We must be vigilant because Belarus and Russia are working hand-in-hand to destabilize Poland, the eastern part of NATO and the eastern region of the European Union. We will therefore show our toughness in this regard. Strong words there from Polish Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki to the movement in recent days of Wagner forces close to the Polish border. Fresh from their aborted rebellion last month in Russia, thousands of Wagner soldiers are reported to have been stationed in Belarus, some near the town of Grodno, about 15 kilometres from the NATO and EU frontier. Tensions have remained high there for the past two years, ever since Minsk allowed large numbers of migrants and refugees from the Middle East and Africa to transit the country and try to cross into Poland and Lithuania. Polish leaders accused Belarus of mounting a form of hybrid warfare and now fear that the mercenaries could be used to make matters much worse. For more, I asked Warsaw-based correspondent Joe Harper whether the country's leaders are right to be worried. I would suggest that they do. We don't know exactly the numbers, but suddenly in the region of between two and a half and 5,000 Wagner group troops turning up on the border is is quite a frightening prospect. Over the last 24 hours, we've had reports of two Belarusian military helicopters crossing over into Polish airspace. 
It's not exactly clear whether or not they did cross over, but it just indicates the edginess of the Polish government's position at the moment. It doesn't want to be obviously perceived as being weak. It's got an election coming up, you know, reinforcing the border with Belarus, building a fence, uh, which they've been doing for the last two years, you know, stocking up on military equipment along the border and, uh, and um, security forces and so on. It, it looks good for a um, right-wing nationalistic government. It, look, it looks like it's, it's, it's good optics. There's been accusations by the opposition that the government is using this to delay elections. Potentially it will postpone democracy, is what Donald Tusk said over the weekend. Joe, you recently visited a town on the Belarusian-Polish border. Did you get an ominous sense from locals about Wagner's presence just across the frontier there? I visited Tereszpol on Monday and Tuesday. I talked to a lot of local people who are quite sanguine about the whole situation. They've lived in a similar situation, they say, for a long time. Belarus has been a kind of basket case, one man told me, put it in those terms, for, for a long time. So there were reports that, you know, there was a lot more gunfire being heard, there was a lot more activity that could be heard. It's only like two or three miles, five kilometres over the border that uh, one of the bases, apparently, where the Vartan troops are being stationed is. One person told me... This is a kind of fabrication of the government. You know, the people in Warsaw want it to be perceived as a big threat. Her place was literally, you know, 200 metres from the, the river Bug, which marks the border with uh, Belarus, and about, again, three miles over the border or something. Apparently there were a 1,000 Wagner troops. Now, Poland is perhaps Ukraine's most steadfast supporter in the fight back against Russia's invasion, with huge military backing and other aid, also hosting 1.3 million Ukrainian refugees. Is this commitment, along with US President Joe Biden's recent visit to Warsaw, a sign of a possible eastward shift in Europe's centre of gravity? The trip of Biden was seen as indicative of, of some kind of shift towards the east in terms of American strategic positioning in Europe. Poland is also one of the few countries in NATO which is pushing the boundaries of its spending, I think, up to three. They were reportedly wanted to go to 4% of GDP, which is a lot of money. also means a lot of defence contracts, a lot of arms equipment and so on, some of which will be supplied by America. And you also have seen over the last 18 months since the war began a Polish reaction to what it considers Berlin's reluctance to get involved in, in the Ukraine war. And also the ongoing disputes last year about the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline that links Russia with, with Germany. Poles have long said that this was you know, against their interests and that Berlin should, five, six, seven years ago, have started thinking differently. Whether or not this heralds the beginning of a kind of new European eastward pivot or a NATO pivot towards the east, I don't know. I guess it depends how long the war goes on and what is the outcome. I mean, to a large extent, what happens in Ukraine on the ground will determine where the centre of gravity lies in Europe. For the time being, yeah, I think Poland occupies a very strong strategic position, particularly for the Americans. But again, I think it depends, and there's so many uncertainties and unknowns, what will happen to Putin, what will happen to Russia, in a kind of post-Putin scenario. Poland, if you look at the map, would move geographically more to the centre if Ukraine was included in the European Union. So in that sense, they have a kind of strategic incentive in Ukraine also winning the war for that reason. Finally, Joe, you mentioned upcoming parliamentary elections in October or maybe November. 
How much of a role is Poland's far right likely to play? Because they've certainly been stirring up anti-Ukraine sentiment in the last few months, haven't they? The Confederation is the far right party that you're talking about. It's kind of hovering around 12, 13 percent in the opinion polls. And the ruling party, Law and Justice, is probably likely to win the most seats. And Confederation is, is likely to play a kind of role of kingmaker. So they've been stirring up anti-Ukrainian feeling, particularly amongst farmers, I think. A lot of Polish farmers, particularly in the east of Poland, feel that the government let them down last year by allowing leakage of Ukrainian grain onto the Polish market, which depressed prices and then hit local farmers quite hard. There are historical antipathies between the two countries, which have been kind of reignited for kind of political reasons, I think, by Confederation massacres in the southeast of, of Poland at the end of the Second World War. It's another game also being played with the European Union. I mean, Poland is still waiting for a 35 billion euro post-COVID recovery fund cash. Confederation being in the government will create even more problems and make it even less likely that that money will be released by Brussels. So the possibility is that the, uh, the ruling party will move to the right and become even more kind of sabre-rattling in its relationship with Belarus. And that might be dangerous. That might be some kind of small trigger to become something bigger. Journalist Joe Harper speaking to me from Warsaw and will be following Wagner and its antics in Belarus in future weeks on Inside Europe. Just like Poland, Germany is housing more than a million Ukrainian refugees, many of them children. Now, being a teenager is not always easy, but try grappling with this in a foreign country, a culture and language not your own, and worse, having just fled a war zone. Well, for over a year, Vladislav Rakov and Sonia Malakova from Kiev have been forced to do this without their parents, who stayed behind to keep their embattled country afloat. Louise Gorman caught up with the siblings in Berlin, where they live with a German family, to see how they're coping amid all the upheaval. Their names have been changed for privacy reasons. It's the end of school and Vladislav Rakov, or Vlad as he's known, is on his way home. The softly spoken 12-year-old chats to a friend on the train. The transit is a world away from his real home in Kyiv, but it's become a familiar part of Vlad's daily life in Berlin. In a quiet and leafy street in the affluent district of Wilmersdorf, Vlad invites me into his home where he's lived since April last year. So top floor. He shows me his and his sister's room. Always clean. <laughs> the home belongs to Gabriella and Michael Anders and their teenage son Mika. During a chance meeting, they met Vlad and his family during a summer vacation in Austria four years ago. We kept contact sporadically. They invited us to Kiev. Uh, we invited them to Berlin, but it never happened. So we just exchanged some messages, uh, New Year's greetings. Until, of course, February last year, when the Anders watched the news in horror. We were worried, of course. We were 
asking them whether they're okay, and we were really stunned, being such, such a great amount of soldiers invading a European country. It was soon after they offered the family refuge in Germany. Actually, we didn't know about their situation. We didn't know whether they've got relatives somewhere in other countries, but we just said, okay, uh, if you don't know where to go, come to Berlin. Vlad was just 11 when his parents decided to leave Kiev. We already were sleeping, but in one moment we had a like, really loud explosion. The rocket doesn't hit anything. It was kind of explode in the air and we hear like really loud explosion and we saw that it was sun already. Like everything was really light. In fact, the missile struck an underground train station 700 meters from the family's apartment. Wearing just the warm clothes on their back, Vlad's mother drove him, his sister and older brother Daniel to safety. But not everyone wanted to leave. My sister don't want to leave because my father has to stay in Ukraine. He can't get out only for like a weekend. He also has to work. And my sister and I don't want to leave my father and uh, my brother too. They spent a few weeks in Lviv before leaving Daniel in Poland, where he attends university, then drove on to Berlin. My mom was staying with us for one month and then she gone back to Ukraine. So she has basically to work there. Otherwise, she could stay with us in Berlin. But then my father is an entrepreneur. That's very complicated with his work right now. That's Vlad's 16-year-old sister, Sonia, who says she still doesn't believe it was the right decision. I still don't understand this. my mother's opinion that we have to be in Germany because they take a risk there in Ukraine while they live in there, my parents. She tells me the war interrupted and fast-tracked her future. The idea was that I will go abroad to study, but as far as war started, that happens a lot more faster than I expect. So it started in 10th grade when I even did not have a school degree. She arrived in Berlin with just a little German. Just like to order a coffee here, even with some problems. Over there. <laughs> yeah, but first, like four words, which I... While she tries to improve her language skills, she's frustrated by having to help her younger brother when he's not interested. My parents can call me and say, like, Sonia, you have to motivate your brother to go to football or to do his homework. Living thousands of kilometers apart, Vlad talks to his parents daily. It's better for me because I will feel just better that I talk with my mom. Is everything okay? And... I just hear her voice and I feel better, have more energy, and yeah. Aside from his family and close Ukrainian friends, Lad says he's happiest playing football and dreams one day of going professional. When I'm on football pitch, I feel like this is my space. I can do here what I want and I feel nice. I don't worry about anything. I just play football. Zwei Kontakte, Vlad. Yeah? Standing 182 centimeters tall, Vlad towers over his teammates. He's among six Ukrainians playing for a local football club in Charlottenburg-Wilmersdorf. Coach Oliver Kassebaum says Vlad is by far the tallest youth talent he's seen, but understands his mind and feet are in two camps. You're too young to make big decisions, maybe, but you have to try to grow up now very fast, yeah? Because here you have a big chance. It's an obvious dilemma, says Michael Anders. They're lovely children and, and we provide shelter and food here. Okay, there are schools, sports clubs and so on, but we cannot replace the real family. 
and I think that is one of the most difficult things. It's the last day of the school year. Tomorrow, the siblings will catch a train to the Polish border. Their mum will meet them there and drive back to the Ukraine. The plan is for Vlad to now live with his parents in Kiev and for Sonia to return to Berlin after the summer. He did not even open his luggage. What is kind of problem, you know? Sonia's online tutorial is cancelled. She takes a break and chats instead to school friend Yuki. I just want to wish you a good summer. The friends exchange stories and discuss the pros and cons of vegetarianism. Unlike her friends, Sonia will spend the summer in Kyiv, studying ahead of grade 11 in Berlin. Please try to stay safe and I love you so much, okay? I love you so much too, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to seeing you after summer and I'm sure you will do really great. Forgetting her vegetarianism, Sonia follows her nose downstairs. Gabriella has just prepared fish fingers and mashed potatoes for lunch. She says the kids are looking forward to going home and reminds Sonia to swap their SIM cards before they reach Poland. Yeah, because my mom, oh my God, 100 euro again. At least teenager themes don't change much for these siblings living in exile. Louise Gorman in Berlin for DW. And while those kids look forward to going home, we're going to focus on the changing media landscape in Europe now. One of the surprising developments of the last few years is the emergence of what critics call a French Fox News and what its fans call a TV channel where all opinions, even conservative ones, can be heard. Say News, where the nationalist journalist turned politician Eric Zemmour used to be a star act, has become the second most popular news channel in the country, attracting complaints too for the views it airs on immigration and Islam in particular. The Minister of Culture has even suggested that the media watchdog withdraw the channel's license. This report from John Lawrenson in Paris. Le droit européen. C'est possible de finir? Je suis désolé, vous avez tort. Le droit européen. A typical day on a very atypical free-to-air news channel, and a woman as strikingly young and good-looking as she is right-wing is laying into her regular sparring partner, a former editor of the left-wing newspaper Libération. They're arguing about Paris City Hall's decision to withdraw its financial support for SOS Méditerranée, the NGO that rescues migrants from the Mediterranean Sea and takes them to European ports. Welcome to CNews, a channel owned by the conservative, practicing Catholic billionaire Vincent Bolloré, where about a third of a million people tune in each day to follow the cut and thrust of the culture wars à la française. Maxime Duchesne is one of them. Alors, fan, non, je suis CNews. Donc, je connais CNews. I'm not a fan of CNews. I am CNews. I first heard about this channel because it was being vilified and ostracized. It was this that got me interested. I couldn't bear the sanitized style of the rest of the media. I don't want lukewarm media because what's happening in France isn't lukewarm. I don't want to be infantilized by media that worry if I should be allowed to hear such and such a word while refusing to see that France is breaking apart. Ostracized is sometimes the case. This, for example, was an exchange between a CNews reporter and the new General Secretary of the CGT trade union, Sophie Binet, during one of the recent demonstrations against President Macron's raising of the retirement age. 
I don't want to reply to CNews, she says. Why, asks the journalist. I don't go on your programmes. You will only talk to certain media outlets. I talk to all media that guarantee freedom of expression and a plurality of points of view. But it does, says essayist Laurent Dandrieux, culture editor at the conservative, some say extreme right, newsweekly Valeurs Actuelles. It's just not the same balance as the one we're used to. In France, les médias, in France the broadcast media is dominated culturally by the left. So very few right-wing people were ever invited onto this sort of political talk show. And the sort of right-wing people who were invited were the sort who are ashamed of it, or would prefer to be left-wing, or whose being right-wing consists in adopting left-wing positions later than if they were left-wing. CNews is completely different. The right-wingers are numerous, often even a majority, and they are often people who are not ashamed of being right-wing, which, for French television, is something totally new. Madame la Ministre, de très nombreuses personnes ont été choquées. Which is the real reason, charged this centre-right MP in the National Assembly, that the Minister of Culture suggested France's independent media regulator close CNews down. Je vous remercie, mon cher collègue. La parole est à Madame Rima Abdul-Malak, Ministre de la Culture. Her reply was to list the rules the watchdog is bound to enforce. Independence concerning the business interests of owners and advertisers, plurality of points of view on controversial topics, fighting discrimination, etc. Let's look at the regulator's sanctions since 2019, she said. For CNews and C8, another more generalist Bolloré-owned channel, one of whose presenters has been sanctioned for homophobia and libel, 20 sanctions. For all the other channels combined, two. The philosophy professor Saïd Benmoufok, who writes a column for the left-wing weekly Lobs, says that through the transmission of short extracts from its debate programmes on Twitter, etc., this channel has become a major actor in the French culture wars, popularising expressions such as wokeism, human rightsism, LGBT lobby and gender theory, which belong, he says, to the extreme right. Senus also, he says, frequently crosses the line into illegality. In January, for example, the journalist Judith Weintraub said on CNews that Ukrainian refugees don't pose the same problems of integration and cultural difference as certain Africans do. This is incitement to discrimination against certain refugees because of their origin. Also, Jean-Claude Dacier, a regular CNews contributor, said the Muslims don't give a fig about the Republic, they don't even know what the word means. Again, incitement to discriminate comment for which Sinews fired this contributor. The channel turned down an offer of an interview, but in response to the minister's statement, pointed out that the head of the media watchdog has since stated that Sinews does respect the rules when it comes to the expression of diverse points of view. For the time being then, to the delight and horror of the French, Sinews looks set to continue. John Lawrence and DW, Paris. Still to come, in Vienna, retirement doesn't have to be dull or bereft of young people. And a reminder, you're welcome to message us with your thoughts on any of these reports. Drop a line to InsideEurope at DW.com and we'll be back in touch. This is Inside Europe and I'm Nick Martin in Germany. 
Finally this week, we visit a cafe in Vienna that wants to bring the generations together. The unique project aims to fight poverty by giving the elderly a chance to earn some extra money after they retire. At the same time, these working grannies and grandpas teach younger folks at the cafe how to prepare delicious cakes. The cafe's name, Fall Pension, which translates to full board. Heidi Fuller Love went out exploring. Just one of a long line of bars and cafes in Vienna's fourth district. From the outside, there's little to distinguish Faux Pension from the others. Descend a few steps and open the door to the cafe, however, and it's like entering another world where cheery orpars, granddads, and charming omars or grandmas chat with young students and families perched on cushioned seats surrounded by old gramophones and sepia photos on walls and vintage furnishings. And over it all hangs the comfort odours of coffee and delicious homemade cake, including Vienna's classic sponge cake, I'm here to meet 36-year-old David Haller, one of the co-founders of Faux Pension, or Full Pension, a groundbreaking social cafe project in the Austrian capital where the city's old-age pensioners can top up their pensions by as much as 40% whilst actively getting involved in society, making new friends and mingling with young people as they cook meals and give baking lessons. With a lively mix of both young and senior staff, ranging from the ages of 18 to 80 and hailing from all regions of Austria, diversity is definitely the name of the game here. We are sort of a public living room where the generations come together. We are an intergenerational coffee house and the idea is to uh, create jobs for elderly people so they can earn some money uh, to, to their pension. And uh, we have grandmas and grandpas here who bake cakes in an open kitchen. So you can go there, you can watch, you can chat with them. So it's all about bringing the generations together and uh, learning from each other. The idea, which started as a pop-up in 2012, sprang from a very personal place. I, like I always said, I always had a, a really deep connection with my grandmother. She passed away last year at 91. But she also worked here, so that, that made it even more more special for me. Um, we just started it because we said, well, we need a place where the generations come together and where you get good cakes. It, it, it's much more than, than the cake. It's, it's, it's the feeling that comes with it. It's the love with which it's made. Soon, however, he realized that Fol Pension was a lot more than just a place to bring generations together. As David explains, it corresponded to a real felt need in society. And then after a while we found out, well, there's a big, big theme behind when it comes to um, isolation, poverty when you're older. So that's, and that's of course something we're, we're emphasizing now. The, the reasons why the people come here and work here are completely, everybody has his own reasons, but most of them come here because they need the money and their pension is so low. We have coffee and cake. Yeah. It's for time one hour. We have two breakfast, mm-hmm. one uh, 90 minutes, small breakfast and big breakfast. It's normally with eggs and ham, 
One of the first grandmas to start working at Vaux-Vincent eight and a half years ago, 78-year-old Marianne is one of the regular hosts. Yes, I, I like this place, but I'm alone. I'm a singer. Yeah? And uh, life at now is so expensive. Yes, and so therefore I worked here for money. But also I love to speak with the guests and it's my, it's my family. I'm here alone. Yes, and so I have here, I feel my family, but it's good. <laughs> I'm also amateur actress. This is here my theatre. And it's not just older people who love folle pension. For homesick travellers and young students who are far from their families, folle pension is a refuge too. As Annette, who's originally from Munich, can testify. Both of my grandmothers died um, in the last six months, which is uh, very sad because we were so close. And for me also, knowing that I could be in contact with uh, that generation again is so important. Well, it's very different opinions and views on the world as well. And um, getting advice from someone who's already lived for, I don't know, 60, 70, 80 years um, is quite special and very different from advice from someone who's my age. Yes, very enriching, yeah. This groundbreaking project might have started here in Vienna, but with increasing interest from around the world, Folle Pension, an innovative scheme to bridge the generation gap whilst helping seniors beat loneliness and live decently, could soon be a global phenomenon. Watch this space. And that report was from Heidi Fuller Love. Now, as well as our rebroadcasters around the world, Inside Europe continues to gain traction on podcast platforms. And if you would be so good as to hit subscribe and give us a review, it will help promote the show to other listeners. This programme was produced by Helen Seeley and sound engineers Mikhail Springer and Ziad Abu Slyman. And I'm Nick Martin. Thanks for listening. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Germany.